The Progressive Radio Network is a thinking person's network for our world's progressive visionaries and stakeholders and great thinkers to assemble on a commercial-free and listener-supported network. Our provocative hosts speak freely and passionately on intriguing and urgent topics such as health and news and politics and women's issues and philosophy and more that directly impact our lives. Progressive Radio Network takes chances. Our voices and ideas are not always welcomed by corporate media. So Progressive Radio Network is a very important outlet for these great thinkers. Welcome to Visionaries. I'm John Lobel, your host. You'll find us here on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm every Monday at 10 a.m. or whatever time it is your part of the world. And be sure to look at our back shows. Oh, God, there's about 50 or 60 of them by now um, at visionaries.podbean. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N as in Nancy, dot com. And there's a dozen other ways to listen to Progressive Radio Network. You can phone in 424-203-8046. Oh, and also call in uh, today. Uh, Our topic is going to be groupthink. So if you have any thoughts about groupthink, 888-874-4888. You can also get us on iTunes and other pod broadcast services, etc. So um, lots of ways to check in. You can also get our app for your smartphone, Android and iOS. And um, I I just go on to the website on my phone and plug it into my radio. I have an old car. It doesn't Bluetooth. <laughs> so I have a wire to plug it in and it's just like I'm listening to Gary on WBAI, which I used to do all the time. He's still there, but he's also here. And the um, um, great thing is, you know, I go to I go to YouTube. I can listen to those <clears throat> on the car radio. My wife doesn't like it. <laughs> she wants to get away from what she calls the blather. But uh, when she's not in the car, I'm always listening to something. So I was thinking, picking up on last week's show, I didn't get to the movie Lucy, but I'm not going to get it today either. But uh, watch Lucy with um, Scarlett Johansson. And what I was thinking about, and we'll talk about it in a future show, is you get these movies where... There's an encounter with some transcendent reality, uh, supernatural, in mummy movies. You know, I remember the, um, you know, the 40s mummy movies. The uh, mummy wants to kill a contemporary young woman and then reincarnate his long-dead ancient Egyptian lover, 
uh, into her body. And he says to the woman, don't you want to be immortal and hobnob with the gods? And she says, no, I want to go back to New Jersey with my white picket fence and get old and have kids get old and die. And fine, that's probably the better choice. But, you know, you'd think at least once someone would say, you know, oh, <laughs> let's try this immortality thing and hobnob with the gods just to see what it's like. And so we very occasionally, and Lucy is one of them, get a movie that does that. And then the issue becomes, what is it like? And of course, now we need a very imaginative filmmakers because we're getting out of uh, our everyday material reality. So what's that going to be like? Well, uh, Lucy's not that sophisticated about, but it does a good job. You know, and a lot of it, of course, is imagery. And one of the classics of this is 2001, A Space Odyssey, in which our astronaut arrives at the, uh, or approaches the moon of Jupiter, where there's another one of those sentinels, another one of those monoliths, that the movie opened with. And I've mentioned in the past that Joseph Campbell refers to two kinds of mythologies, one in which spirit comes from without and the other it comes from within. In other words, did we build the pyramids or did space aliens build the pyramids? We're too dumb to build pyramids. Well, pyramids are not very complicated. <laughs> you just need a lot of people, a lot of ropes, and some big stones and make an inclined plane to get them up there. And if you look at something like Gothic cathedrals, more stone was quarried to build the Gothic cathedrals during the about 1150 to 1250 in Europe. There's 80 major cathedrals and about 380 churches built during that period. They quarried more stone to build those than the Egyptians did to build all of their monuments. And we don't hear anybody claiming that space aliens built the, uh, built the Gothic cathedrals. And there's kind of an anonymity about them because the the people building them didn't want uh, personal credit. They were building for the glory of God. But then we get to something much more stone, grander, bigger than the Gothic cathedrals, namely, say, St. Peter's in Rome. And there's old St. Peter's that's torn down, and Bramante starts new St. Peter's. And it's eventually pretty much finished by Michelangelo, Later, there's a, uh, a nave and a facade edit that are not his. But the, um, you know, we have the, we have the invoices. <laughs> we know who built it. Uh, there are no space aliens building St. Peter's Cathedral. So why do we need them to build the pyramids? We can do that. And so a kind of... Um, Campbell likes to think of that we are the spiritual eyes and ears of the world, of the universe, perhaps. And that's a pretty grand role for us. And maybe 
Lucy's in that in that um, in that genre because uh, the conceit is that she's uh, ingests this bizarre drug through no fault of her own, and it turns on from twelve percent or whatever to one hundred percent of her brain, at which point she has all these powers. And, you know, is that what 100% of our brain's going to do? But it's a very enticing movie. It's one of those movies that if it's on, I'll watch it. <laughs> I don't go out of my way <clears throat> to play it. I haven't checked out if it's on, on, on demand. But I'm flipping channels and, you know, cool. So uh, we'll talk more about that and that versus the mummy movies in a later show. But what I wanted to talk about today was groupthink. And it was inspired by current issue, let's see the date, The Week magazine, December 21, 28. And it's got the faces of 2018 on the cover with a lot of Washington figures. And I uh, we get The Week and we we look at it. I always flip to its recommendations for books. My wife flips to its um, uh, houses. It'll have some theme, you know, stone houses, uh, houses next to lakes, uh, whatever. And they'll be all from all over the country. So I'm looking at this current issue and the section on health. So... Some of the things they said were good for us in 2018. So we're told that organic foods may reduce cancer risk. Holding hands may reduce physical pain. Saunas could be as beneficial for your heart as moderate exercise. Great. <laughs> it just lay in the sauna. The steam rooms work too. You just lay in the sauna for 30 minutes, and uh, there you go. Uh, Full-fat dairy may help protect against heart disease and stroke. I'll get back to that. To-do lists could help you sleep. Leg exercise appears to be crucial for brain health. (laughs) It causes brain cells to grow. And turmeric could help improve memory and ease depression among those with age-related mental decline. I wonder if I'm suffering age-related mental decline. I don't know. But going back to full-fat dairy, I'm reminded of a book, and I don't want to argue a position one way or the other about um, nutrition and diet. But rather, let's see, where are we? Group thing, true believers. Uh, rather, I'm interested in um, what I don't want to talk about science. What does science tell us? What does it claim uh, to be uh, to know about? And let's see. Here we go. Looking for a printout about a book. 
Hang on. There we go. So the book is The Big Fat Surprise. And it advocates a high-fat, high-protein diet against a um, high-carbohydrate diet. So I don't want to get into that. It's um, <clears throat> Obviously, there's a ton of research on either side. Various figures on um, progressive radio have um, positions about this. But the um, so the book is The Big Fat Surprise, Why Butter, Meat, and Cheese Belong in a Healthy Diet by Nina Techholtz. Now, the, the, the interesting thing to me about the book was its coverage of the studies that were behind the high carbo high the low fat high carbohydrate diet and uh, how those the questionability of those studies so let's just recall um, something from way back um, I recall in Gary's Gary Knoll's radio shows from 40 years ago he often talked about uh, cancer studies. And at that time, we were hearing about, oh, some new protocol has a 50% cure rate. And I'm thinking, great, you know, you, you take three of those protocols and you got a 150% cure rate. Uh, how come the only bottom line statistic is that cancer rates and cancer deaths go up slowly each year? If, you know, every year we've got another 50% cure rate. Well, imagine the following. And here's another, uh, I won't talk about what it is because I don't want to argue the issue, but something maybe they put in the water. So let's say you do a study. Somebody, not, somebody does a study and they have 100 cases, 80% uh, turn up A and 20% turn up B. Now the paper gets written and what the scientist does is select two from the uh, 80 group and 10 from the 20 group and say, wow, we got 80% A, the exact opposite of what they had before. Well, why'd they do that selecting? Well, there, there can be reasons. Um, in the case of cancer treatments, all the people who died during their study uh, got eliminated from the study. Why? Well, they didn't get the full three months treatment. It's not fair to count them. Our treatment takes three months. If somebody dies after two and a half months, um, they didn't get the full treatment, they're eliminated from the study. And then when they select the patients initially, well, they're not going to select people, you know, for a three-month study who look like they're going to die in the next week. Uh, so they select the healthiest people. They eliminate all the ones who died during the study. And lo and behold, 50% of them are still alive. At the end of the three months, our study had a 50% cure rate. So, um, you know, it's very possible to really trigger studies. So <clears throat> what we ask, several things, but one of them is, 
We want to see the original data. Now, that's a big controversy. Uh, very uh, Usually, you don't see the original data. Well, that's proprietary. Uh, that's confidential. Well, if you don't see the original data, the whole thing it could be and probably is BS. So I don't know the exact numbers. It's like 80% of, 50% of all studies in science can't be replicated, and 80% of all studies in the social sciences can't be replicated. So that doesn't mean that they're bogus. It's just most probably they're bogus. Uh, and I, I'm on several blogs where when I see um, social science claims, I post uh, social, pardon me to any social scientist, but social science is a profession for uh, opinion bloggers who can't get a uh, can't get a talk radio show or a newspaper column, so they become social science scientists. And social science is just you know typically opinions. You can make if you believe marriage is good, marriage is bad. This is good. This is bad. You can work up a study that's going to prove your point. I uh, pardon me for generalizing here because I, you know, I'm not good at remembering statistics specifics, but I remember generality. So, I was listening to the radio yesterday, Sunday, NPR, and one of those shows, um, which is you know, a documentary show in which they interview lots of people, and there's music in between. It's about the history of the diagnosis of homosexuality as a disease. So up until, I'm not sure the exact date, I think the the mid-70s, the official diagnosis manual had homosexuality as a disease. And all the psychiatrists would, you know, meet every year and vote favorably to keep that. And... um, a lot of gay people um, started protesting that. And the um, today, homosexuality is not a disease. Actually, it happened in two steps. Uh, number one, first step was homosexuality was not a disease. But if someone was homosexual and presented with mental health problems, so a psychiatrist, there is a diagnosis for that. Well, you know, there are two strong possibilities. One is that uh, you could be homosexual with no mental problems except those that come from society treating you badly. That could cause mental problems. And number two was you could be homosexual and totally unrelatedly have mental problems. So now even that diagnosis is gone from the diagnosis manual. Well, what, what you know... Was the previous, whatever, 50 years of uh, homosexuality being listed as a disease, suddenly reality changed? No. Scientists changed their mind. It's, it's, it's a bunch of opinions. There's no basis for it. So one of the chief proponents that it was a disease was a <clears throat> Freudian psychoanalyst who they go on and on to, well, okay, how does someone become homosexual? What is, how do they fail to make the 
correct or normal, uh, uh, erotic attachment adjustment, at what point during their sexual development from the Oedipal stage to this stage to that stage, all of which is total BS. Um, uh, But the whole psychiatric field was caught up in this. Um, And, you know, there's, there's... And so the only homosexuals that were ever studied were those who were in therapy or in a mental hospital. Nobody went out and said, let's take 100 homosexuals, 100 straight people, uh, give them a bunch of questionnaires, and, and then have somebody look at them and see if, if anything stands out. Like, So somebody finally went and did that. It had never been done. And here, this whole thing is treated as a disease, as a crime. Um, the... Um, British Secret Service assassinated Alan Turing, one of the founders of the computer age, because he was gay. Um, He had been jailed and given uh, hormonal castration as a treatment for a disease. Um, You know, just horrible things that went on throughout until just recently, just a few years ago, and still problems to this day, but um, at least it's not a jailable crime in the United States. It is in more than half the world, but uh, not in uh, most Western European countries. So there's an example, and I don't want to talk about homosexuality, I want to talk about the science that claimed that it understood something, could understand, diagnose, and treat it when it couldn't do anything of the kind. It was all totally made up BS. So um, that um, so this book, The Big Fat Surprise, shows how much of the studies of, uh, you know, like the Mediterranean diet. Well, apparently that's from one study done in one week during Lent. <laughs> Uh, and no one has ever defined Mediterranean diet. You know, it's white Italians. Apparently, it's supposed to have a lot of olive oil. Well, is it Italian? You know, northern Italians uh, eat dairy. Southern Italians don't eat dairy. Um, what exactly are we talking about when we say the Mediterranean diet? We think we know what we mean. You know, a lot of olive oil and fish and uh, olives and vegetables. Well, okay, which Mediterranean people eat that and where are the studies of their health compared to other groups? You know, so they say, oh, in Denmark they eat a lot of cheese and have a lot of heart attacks. Whoa. Well, yeah, but in Switzerland they eat a lot of cheese and they have very few heart attacks. Uh, so... Exactly how are these studies done? Uh, And the way they're done is someone starts with something they want to believe, and then they go find a way to demonstrate it. And then the part where it gets really ugly is 
uh, step one is you never see their original data. Uh, a famous quote in another field is, "I'm not going to show you. I'm not going to show you my data. You just want to use it to try to prove I'm wrong." Well, duh, it's called science. <laughs> uh, but you know, most fields, particularly ones that call themselves settled science, are not science. First thing we need to know about settled science is that there is no such thing. You know, there's certain people that claim that their field is settled science. There's no argument. This is settled. Well, um, that's interesting because the atom is not settled science. Gravity is not settled science. Interesting that your field should be settled science when no other area of science is, particularly things like, duh, gravity, you know. Like Einstein totally overthrows Newton. So Newton said it was a force somehow acting at a distance. So if I uh, hold up a stone and I let go of it, it falls. Because these invisible lines of force reach out from the earth and grab it and pull it down. Well, what if I put a sheet of steel under the stone? Uh, do the forces, those invisible lines of force go through the steel? How did they do that? What are they? And Newton very explicitly said, I don't know, and I'm bothered by the fact that I don't know. And Einstein said, no, there are no f lines of force at all. What it is is uh, massive objects, all objects, but particularly massive ones do it so we notice it, distort the space-time field around them so that when you let go of the stone, it doesn't move at all relative to space-time. It stays still, but space-time itself is in a state of dynamic collapse. And the stone is standing still in that distorting space-time. Okay, um, we've been pretty happy about that for 100 years. It's just had... Uh, Three years ago, it had its 100th anniversary, and there's bazillions of confirmations of it. Uh, one of the ones people like to quote is, when they were putting up the uh, satellites for GPS uh, that we use in our phone and car navigators, um, the original math in the GPS were done with Newtonian formulas. And one of the scientists said, hey, you know, um, the, 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 the Earth dragging space-time behind it as it moves is going to make those formulas be off. And this whole thing will be off by about 15 feet. It's going to tell you you're in the other lane. <laughs> and, you know, the, the one we get is good to, what, six feet? And the one the military gets is good to six inches. But <clears throat> um, the scientist was told to stuff it, you know. <laughs> you're full of it. So he slipped it in there anyway. And uh, he slipped that programming for that in there. And when they turned the whole thing on, sure enough, it was off by 15 feet. Switched it over to his formulas, and it worked perfectly. So that's taken as a confirmation of 
Einstein's theory over Newton's. Only problem is, uh, even Einstein's formulas don't work for galaxies. So galaxies um, typically, some are just clusters, but ours is a, has these two arms that are spinning like a big pinwheel. And we can see other galaxies that, and photograph them in very high res that are very much like ours. So we have an idea of what ours looks like. And we look at these spinning galaxies, and the spinning of the galaxy is flinging the matter in them, the stars and the other matter, outward, while the gravity of all the mass of the galaxy is holding them inward, and they're in balance, so they don't fly apart, and they don't collapse. The only problem is, that sounds good, but it can't be what's going on. And again, my, uh, my apologies for not remembering who, was, uh, who did all the work. But I think it was uh, a woman astronomer, of course, didn't get credit. <coughs> Excuse me. Was measuring these galaxies for years, and then finally a bunch of men got a hold of the data and got the credit for, hey, there's not enough matter to counteract that centrifugal force by like 90%. 90% of the matter is missing. So then they assume, okay, our theory is correct. The gravity of the matter, whether you want to call it Newtonian force or Einsteinian distortion of the space-time field, um, the matter is doing the job, but 90% of the matter doing that is not visible. It's not stars, it's not dust, it's not uh, clouds, it's not... So it was called dark matter. Okay. Um, that totally throws up in the air Newton's formulas. You know, we still keep them, but they're going to need some adjusting to account for like 90% of the effect of gravity. What's doing that? Is it some type of particle that's very prevalent but doesn't interact with other matter and doesn't interact with light? That's what's sort of being assumed. That's why it's called dark matter. But the other possibility is that you need to adjust Einstein's formula, uh, that, it, you know, that formula isn't doing the job. And... So there is a whole branch of science which comes into question. Um, so if gravity is not settled, how is it that these other issues are settled science, particularly when they're dependent on hundreds or even thousands of variables that we hardly even understand? So um, I'm looking at my New York Times maybe about two years ago, and in the op-ed section, there was an editorial. Now, this was a time before the current, the, you know, the 
election of two years ago. There are groups questioning experts. Well, the New York Times is the ultimate expert, so they don't like to be questioned. And they have on call for any issue they want to address uh, the leading experts, and they shouldn't be questioned. So the idea that we're questioning experts. So this editorial uh, or op-ed was, you know, saying, well, wouldn't, if you were having brain surgery or heart surgery, wouldn't you want the most expert surgeon doing the job? And so, you know, sure. Only problem is that's a straw man. That's not what people questioning experts are questioning. If you want to think of yahoos in uh, pickup trucks, question it, you know, they, they might be questioning evolution, but they're not questioning who does the repair on their truck. Of course, they want to go to the person that they believe is the most expert in the services that they need at the moment. So when people question experts, they're questioning something else. And I'm thinking of the um, the questioning the whole culture of experts, the, the idea that there's an elite who's uninformed opinions are more valid than the uninformed opinions of the rest of us. And, of course, these are people who go to Ivy schools, uh, this and that. So I think back on a beautiful uh, biographical essay by the late Tom Wolfe, who just died, and about Robert Noyce. So Noyce was the one of the co-founders of Fairchild and then ultimately Intel and is co-inventor of the integrated circuit, the microchip, and also uh, had the nickname the mayor of Silicon Valley because he was very much responsible for creating the culture of Silicon Valley. And that culture of extreme um, extreme appreciation of um, capable inventiveness as opposed to credentials. And to this day, you know, that approach is controversial. But the people who need the talent... Uh, This, like, no discussion. Um, Google's famous for putting a really difficult equation on a bulletin board, saying, if you solve the, not a bulletin board, a uh, billboard on the highway, if you solve this equation, call us up. We want to interview you. And companies like Amazon, Facebook, Google, Apple, um, Microsoft are all competing for top engineering talent and you know particularly in software engineers right now they're all making this leap to artificial intelligence I'm listening to an interesting book right now 
Let me see if I can dig out the phone and get the name of it. A um, couple of interesting books recently. Do Not Disturb is set. That's good. The Inevitable. Okay, Kevin Kelly, author of What Technology Wants. He said something interesting about artificial intelligence, and that is, you know, we're waiting for this killer application like HAL 9000 to come and suddenly break through and take over. He says, maybe it's not going to be that way. Maybe it'll just creep into every aspect of our lives. You know, like, um, hey, Siri, where is a pizza restaurant? (laughs) I found six pizza, pizza restaurants, three of them near your current location. Well, that's artificial intelligence. And as it gets more and more, oh, there's something you got to try. Um, Google has this one. Go to uh, go to Google. I think it might be on YouTube, but search Google for hairdresser appointment or AI hairdresser appointment, and it's a recording of a real live person who's an executive assistant calling up a hair salon. Hi, uh, my name is so-and-so. I'd like to make an appointment for my boss, so-and-so. Ideally next Thursday between 11 and 1. And the answer comes back, uh, I don't have anything between 11 and 1 on next Thursday. Would 1.30 do? Uh, Yes, that would be fine. So they go through the whole thing. They set up the appointment. We'll see you then. Name, phone number, the whole thing. The assistant calling to make the appointment was a real human being making an appointment for her boss. The On the other end was an answering machine <laughs> with AI. <laughs> you know, and it did the whole thing. It took the appointment, it recorded the time, it's now on the hairdresser's calendar, um, and, I, and I bet if, uh, if the people calling are using Google Calendar, it's now on their calendar. I don't use a calendar, so I make my own with, uh, with Excel. So I have to set up each week uh, I haven't really learned how to use the uh, the Apple Calendar. Although the Apple Calendar, if you don't use it, it's really cool because you put something on your laptop, it'll be there on your phone. Um, I have all mine on my laptop, but it's not on my phone. So uh, i got to learn how to use the uh, Apple Calendar. But anyway, so this argument is that AI is maybe going to creep up on us and we've got it already. <clears throat> it's just going to keep increasing incrementally. I think I mentioned before, but you got to try. I don't. I don't know if Apple's been uh, improved their translation. So I read about uh, a new generation of Google translation, and the first language was Chinese, and they then had six languages. I don't know how many they're up to now because this is more than a year ago. But so I I work with a, a, a 
occasionally with a person who's Vietnamese, and they use um, Google Translate, and I'll get something from them, and I, it just takes me forever to figure out what the hell that is because they wrote it in Vietnamese and ran it through Google Translate, and it comes out gibberish. Well, I took a paragraph, you know, reading about this new version, I took uh, a paragraph, a long paragraph in English, translated it into Chinese on Google Translate, then translated it back into English, and it, it changed two or three words, and its meaning was 100%. It re- totally got it. So, uh, and, you know, in five years, it'll be 100 times better. And so then I took the same paragraph, because I couldn't use the old Google Translate, but I took the uh, gizmo on Apple, and which apparently, as of when I did this, wasn't there yet, translated the same paragraph into Chinese, translated it back into English, and it came out pretty much gibberish. So um, it's happening, you know, and they're now, I haven't used them, but they're apps where you're just talking, you know, like, where is the train station, you know, (laughs) in Danish? And it'll translate it to the stranger on the seat who will answer you in Danish and your phone will translate it back to English. So that's here. And we just have to be more comfortable using them. Anyway, um, this notion of believing in science. So science is not a religion, you know, and there's a whole elite um, elite culture today that, hey, I've got three Ivy degrees. I've been a college professor for 40-plus uh, years. Uh, I have some published books. Uh, so, I, you know, maybe I am not accepted by, I don't know. But I, I'm, I can handle those elite worlds. You know, I've read Foucault and Derrida and Deleuze. Uh, I did a master's thesis based on the work of Merleau-Ponty, uh, etc. I was enrolled for a Ph.D. in philosophy at the New School. Hans Jonas, a famous uh, continental philosopher, was one of my professors. Aaron Gervich, uh, Merleau-Ponty's teacher, was one of my was my academic advisor. So, you know, I know that world a little bit. And, um, but believe in science. So where's that come from? Of course, it comes from an anger on the part of, excuse me, <coughs> hang on why? get a cough drop. Comes from an anger on the part of the elite that evolution is questioned. So there's a whole interesting history to that. Um, first of all, first of all, to uh, express my position, evolution is a fact. There are creatures here on the earth today that are descendant from, you can trace them back, grandparent, great-grandparent, great-great-grandparent, to creatures from 
10, 20, 100 million years ago that were different. So there are creatures on the earth today who are descended from creatures from a long time ago that were different. So over time, they evolved. That's a fact. Uh, the only alternative is uh, God created um, God created the earth with a lot of skeletons <laughs> 5,000 years ago, made a lot of skeletons that would register 100 million years old to radiocarbon or other dating techniques in order to fool us. I mean, there's uh, people who believe that. Well, what can you do? You know, you can't argue. Uh, and then there's the uh, intelligent, well, there are two intelligent design positions. One is, yes, evolution takes place, but it's driven by the mind of God. Well, that's a little bit interesting, because if we take God out of it and say, driven by certain principles that we that are totally scientifically understandable, but we haven't fully understood them yet. I think that's an interesting proposition. But there's another one where, you know, I'm trying to understand what the hell are these intelligent design people talking about? And so one of the arguments is if you have a, I had a 1968 Chevy Chevelle. Well, they say, if you have a 1968 Chevy Chevelle, ah, let's jump ahead. Um, and then you have uh, a 1980 Chevy V8. And you look back at a 1955 Chevy V8. Those V8 engines in those three Chevrolets are going to share some characteristics. You can tell that one was derived from another. But that does not mean that one gave birth to another, but rather they were all designed by engineers, maybe not the same engineers because they'll, they'll, they'll come and go over time, but engineers that come from the same Chevy engine culture so that the engineers that designed one work with the engineers that designed the earlier ones and those are earlier engineers retired and then the engineers. So it, there's a culture, a pattern of how we do things at Chevy different from Ford in making a V8 engine. So the, I read an intelligent design argument that, that that was sort of their argument. Most intelligent design arguments just attack Darwin. Well, that's easy. But, what, okay, what are you suggesting as an alternative? So there's a little problem here, though. We know where these Chevy engines come from. You know, they come from uh, a culture, individual designers, and then factories that make them. So how does God's intelligent design of making the next generation, you know, giraffe ancestor with the somewhat longer neck, is there some hidden continent that we haven't discovered yet where God drops them by parachute out of the sky and then they migrate to Africa or North America or wherever they're supposed to be the next replacement, new generation, you know, I know where I got my Chevy from the dealer. 
Chevrolet has a whole supply chain that gets from uh, steel and coal to cast iron engines to uh, the factory floor and distributed to the dealer where I get one. <laughs> That's how that new Chevy got on the road. Where did the new somewhat longer neck giraffe come from and how did it get to Africa? Uh, I mean, let's keep an eye out, see if there, we spot anything parachuting in at some point. I mean, uh, so, so evolution is a fact. However, natural selection is a theory. And that was Darwin's theory, that evolution takes place through natural selection. Only problem was he couldn't get it to work because he didn't have the theory of genes. So he thought that um, the offspring were determined by blending. You have one tall parent and one short parent. You're going to get a medium height offspring. Uh, Overall, you'll have a range, but they'll overall average out to medium. Well, if that were the case, if you got a mutation, uh, that mutation would blend in and eventually disappear. It would. There's no way, in blending theory, that you could um, that mutation would come to take over. A, you know, if it was a good mutation, it was going to lead to a some more favorable to be naturally selected. Well, with a gene theory, you say, well, that. The determinant of that mutation is a discrete gene, and it will show up in, let's say, one quarter of offspring, and that one quarter of offspring will not be blended. They will have, they will be tall uh, or short, whatever the desired uh, mutation is, and they will eventually win out because they will have more offspring because they will be more suited to that current environment. Darwin didn't have that. So everybody, people accepted his theory. They liked it, but, you know, we can't quite get it to work. Well, by the late 1940s, uh, it was not well accepted. You know, natural selection was not a big deal. It wasn't well. They couldn't get it to work. And eventually, in the late 40s, they started to mix natural selection with Mendel's idea of the discrete <laughs> unit gene. And then 1953, we get the uh, uh, Watson and Crick deciphering the molecular structure of DNA. DNA was known, but a lot of people didn't think it was the, um, en- the uh, entity carrying genetic information. They thought it had to be a protein because DNA only had four variants. How could four variants lead to the whole complexity of life when proteins are richly varied? So that must be the source. Well, once they realized DNA was, a, now there's only 20-some letters in the alphabet, but you can make the infinity of all information out of that. As a matter of fact, you can make the infinity out of all information out of two bits, a one and a zero. And there are four bits in DNA, so so much the better. But how does it make a code? Well, that's what Watson and Crick realized. And they, you know, a few more 
steps along the way, and then it was understood. We have a long way to go, but we understand the basic underlying principles. But where does that natural selection take place if that's the driver of evolution? Does it take place in the gene as is proposed in the selfish gene? Does it take place in the organism? Does it take place in the uh, group? Does it take place in the species as a whole? These are four totally different theories of how natural selection works. And to say that you are somehow defective because you don't accept natural selection. Well, tell me which natural selection you're proposing. The people that are attached to natural selection don't understand it. They just wave it around as a phrase to intimidate other people. What about information theory? What about symbiogenesis? Whole other approaches. So, wow, I didn't even get to my topic for today. My topic for today was group think. <laughs> so the idea is you get something like the um, oversimplistic notion of natural selection that people don't understand but are abusive to anybody who doesn't accept the theory and they all march off, you know, off some cliff believing in it. And I see, I saw at my school this whole thing starting with, uh, we were late to get the post-structuralists, but we got them. And they were, pardon me to any that might be listening, I thought, uh, you know, badly behaved. And I'm looking at, why, why, what, how, you know, they, this is BS, and why are they all buying into it? And what is this? And there are a couple books on the uh, groupthink of the post-structuralists, but the best presentation of it, <clears throat> I think, was in uh, the book The Trouble with Physics by Lee Smolin. And it's a critique, the book is a critique of String theory, which is a beautiful example of groupthink. Everybody jumped into this this, this uh, string theory thing, which was going to go nowhere. Uh, and even if you're a Big Bang theory, you notice that uh, Sheldon eventually gives up being a, um, a string theory theorist because... Uh, <laughs> It wasn't going to go anywhere. The whole thing was a canard. And uh, so um, how did that happen? What went wrong? How did they do that? Well, that's what this book is about. But in presenting that, it has a whole list of, a whole section of what groupthink is and how groupthink thinking um, screws itself up. So that'll be a topic for um, our next show. Um, I'll get up, and then we'll eventually get to uh, the movie Lucy. But uh, let's wind up. Next time, Group Think. This is John Lobel. This is Visionaries on PRN.FM, Progressive Radio Network. And uh, tune in every Monday at 9 and catch our back shows on visionaries.podbean.com See you next week.